Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. We're continuing in our series called The Crown, looking at First and Second Samuel. And uh, really quick, let me share this with you, because I've shared this before, and I was sharing it earlier this week with a group of pastors, um, that, and, and they were in agreement, because it was pastors, that being a pastor of this job, extremely difficult. Um, the calling to share God's word is tough, and you can never really know 100% if you're being effective or not, because, you know, look around. Uh, sometimes building is packed. Uh, sometimes, you know, between people at camp, people on vacation, people or whatever, uh, there's, there's literally no one in the room or a handful of people in the room. Uh, sometimes you can see, like we see thousands of people a month that download the messages or Hopefully now, the hundreds of people that are listening to it on Word FM on Thursdays, shameless plug, Word FM, Thursdays, 2.30 p.m. if you're not listening, plug in. But you can't tell if those people are really experiencing, you know, change from the Word of God. You can't, like, visit all of them and see that their lives are being transformed, and you have no way of knowing whether or not you're really getting it right. Uh, Because for most people, when you're in a regular job, the boss will either call you into his office and say, hey, you're, you're doing good on this, but maybe you know, change this a little bit of that, or he'll come sit across from your desk or maybe stand outside your cubicle and say, hey, you've gotten this right. Don't focus on this, focus on that. Or you get you know, quarterly, yearly reviews, all those kind of things. When you're a pastor, you don't, you don't get that. You just have to keep hoping and praying, God, I hope I'm doing you know, what you want to do. Uh, now, where we are in, in first, uh, Second Samuel, David actually gets that. His boss, God, sends a prophet and says, I want you to go tell him, uh, you know, yes, he's on the right track. Here's what I have done for him. Here's what I'm going to do for him. Uh, here's where he's, you know, don't focus on this. Focus on that. Most people don't get that. Pastors definitely don't always get that. Every now and then, though, we will get some confirmation that, yeah, you're, you're on the right track. Because uh, just to be honest, and don't judge me. Um, I was thinking, okay, we're in a series, The Crown. Uh, I feel like I should kind of wrap it up. There's about uh, 24 chapters. We're on chapter five or six. Now it's just going to wrap up the next like 18 to 19 chapters next week and just call it good. But then I was meeting with some pastors in Elizabeth. Uh, uh, there were three of us, and you know, we always like, so what are you preaching on this week? And what do you think one of them was preaching on? Second Samuel, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's just coincidence. You know, it just happens, right? Uh, but then um, I went up to Wexford uh, to meet with a bunch of converged pastors from our denominational affiliation. There's uh, six or seven or eight of us. Um, and, and these were pastors, you know, everything from us in between, from the small like us, uh, the mid-sized, 100, 200, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 700, the other one had, what did you say, 16 or 1,500, you know, the ones that have one service where everyone gathers, like us, to the ones that have, like, five spread throughout the weekend, right? Uh, and we're all, and they're, and they're 
all contexts, all cultures. Some of them are urban. One of them is Asian. Uh, another one, I mean, there's just a little bit of everything. And what do you think half of them were preaching on? Anyone want to get? Yeah, 2 Samuel. And we were all like, wow, that's, that's unusual. And it's not like all of them had, you know, preset. Because uh, when we're done with 2 Samuel, we're going to go into a topical uh, thing on you know, won't you be my neighbor? Was it God mean to be a neighbor? Uh, because that's when that movie, um, the Mr. Rogers movie is coming out. It'd be great to match that up. Uh, one of them is going into a Galatians uh, after he finishes. So it's not like we all have this set uh, agenda or lexicon that's, that some people use that's telling us what to preach to. It's just God saying, hey, this is what the people need to hear. So I was kind of like, well, maybe I should not rush through it and just finish it. And one of the guys, he was like, I am not preaching on 2 Samuel. He said, I'm actually preaching chronologically through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all kind of have the same thing, so he's going chronologically through them all. But then he was like, but when I'm done, what do you think he felt like God was telling him to preach on? 2 Samuel. Yeah, so uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of finish and walk through 2 Samuel. Um, and, and as I said, God did send a, a prophet uh, to, to David, and he says, hey, I want you to know um, here's some things I want you to know. Here's some things you got right. Here's some things that you got wrong. And I was kind of like, well, how much time do I spend on this? You know, because it's, 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 there's, there's a lot of historical information. And I felt like God really kind of pushing the fact that um, we need to make sure, and I, I hope we do, that we're teaching biblically, right? So for the the the... You know, people that come, whether it be they listen on Word FM, whether they get the downloads, hopefully they're able to say that, yeah, you know what? They're, they're teaching the Bible. And it's not just, you know, like a lot of people do, the fun verses of the Bible. We teach, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Sometimes it's topics. Uh, and, and they're difficult. And I always say they're difficult to comprehend. We were talking about this um, with, uh, actually with Patty when we were hanging out with Patty, because she loves reading through God's word. And we we're talking about the fact that, yeah, you can't interpret, like, the historical books, like First and Second Samuel, the same way you interpret an epistle, because God's not saying that to us. He's telling us about someone else's life, whereas Paul in the epistle is saying, hey, church, do this, live this way. So you have to kind of interpret them differently, and our prayer is that no matter what people say about us, hopefully they're saying, yeah, this, this is the biblically-based church, that we take great importance on spending time and teaching through God's word, even every now and then when the pastor wants you to just rush through to get to the good stuff. But uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to jump into 2 Samuel, uh, and we're going to look at exactly what God said to David and how that impacts us. So if you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8. Starting in verse 8, and if you don't have one, just raise your hand. We'll have someone bring one to you. Uh, now, again, what I'm reading, uh, again, just to clarify, is from the 2011 NIV. So it has some language. If you're reading a newer NIV, it may be different because they upgraded the language because language progresses and changes. It's not that they were trying to be, as many people say, unbiblical. They were just trying to make it user-friendly for everyone. The same way we don't speak King James unless we're quoting from the Bible, uh, there are a lot of people that, you know, their language progresses, so that's what they did. But in um, chapter 7, this is what it says. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, after the king, and he's talking about David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. 
He said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, it's important to note the Lord is the one who gave him rest. David was a great strategist. He was a great soldier, a great leader. But I think, as you're going to see throughout this, God makes it clear God did this. It wasn't just David. And David said, hey, I want to build a palace. I'm living in a palace, but I want to build a house for the ark of God. Uh, and, and they brought it to Jerusalem, but it was still in the tent. And in verse 3, Nathan, who's the prophet, replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, it came to Nathan, but it was specifically for David. He said in verse 5, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a, a tent as my dwelling. And it's important to note, just as God was with David, God was also, also I'm getting all more up here. God was also with the Israelites. Verse 7, he said, Whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And this is important because he's saying it to David and not every bit of this applies to us. <clears throat> Some of it does, but not all of it. He says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now, there is a, 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 an urban colloquialism. It's a phrase that's used in uh, urban terminology, and it's this phrase that's called ride or die. And some of you probably haven't heard it, so let me suburban explain this urban phrase to you. It literally means, um, uh, to, I'm going to ride with you, I'm going to be there for you, I'd be willing to die for you. It's like I have an unparalleled commitment to you. It originated like in the hip-hop community, which is how I know most of you probably haven't heard it, in the hip-hop community, and in the songs where someone was singing about another person, I'm going to be there for you all the time, you can count on me. Then it kind of went into the out-of-hip-hop, just the urban culture as a whole, where uh, Especially a female would be saying to a guy, hey, I'm your ride or die. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to be like all these other women or people who wouldn't step up for you. And it was important because it was saying, I'm not doing this because I'm your family. I'm not doing it because I'm your brother. I'm not doing it because I'm your sister or your mother or your father. I'm doing it because I choose that I'm going to be there for you no matter what. And it has spread from an urban community to a not quite suburban, but if you Google it, I think... It might be safe to Google it. It might not, so don't. Never mind. It might not. Don't, don't. I don't know what will pop up. Uh, so don't, don't Google it. But, but that's what it means. So to an urban mindset, when you read this passage, this is what God is saying to David. He says, hey, you know what? I am your ride or die. When you were out in the fields, and remember David said, hey, I was out in the fields, and I would fight lions or bears whenever they came to get the sheep. God's saying, I was with you. I helped you through that. When David went up against Goliath, a giant, and the whole nation of Israel was scared, David said, God's got my back. I'm going to fight on behalf of God. And God said, I was with you. I did that. Every victory that David had, it's because God was with him. And what God is telling him now, hey, I was with you then. I'm going to be with you now. 
I'm going to be with you always. It's the same thing that Jesus tells to us. He says, I will never leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to leave. No matter whether you're going through good times or bad, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your ride or die. My unparalleled commitment to you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And because of who he is, he willingly chooses to make that choice to be there for us. And then this is what else God says. He says, um, continuing to say, hey, Nathan, go tell David that I'm going to make your name great. That's what I did for you in the past. Here's what I'm going to do for you in the future. I'm going to make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And even the people who don't know God today know the name of King David. And he says, and I'm going to provide a palace for my people Israel and plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And he said, wicked people are not going to oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders. And in some places, that phrase is interpreted judges rather than leaders over my people Israel. And he says, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. And depending on which version you're looking at, some of the language indicates that it's a past tense phrase saying, I have already given you rest from all your enemies. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David's like, I want to build a house for the ark, for God. And God's like, don't worry about me. I am going to build a house, meaning a stronghold, a fortress. And we know it now is just not just a house, but a legacy for David. And in verse 17, Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation and King David went in and sat before the Lord, which means he literally went in to the tent where the ark was, and he sat down, and he begins praising God and sharing prayers to God. And he says this, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And that's the beauty of it. He acknowledges, yeah, you're right. I would not be where I am today without you in my life. In verse 19, and as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man? And the answer is yes. As we've talked about, this has been God's desire from Genesis to Revelation is to have a group of people where he could make his name known, that he could share his love with them, and that they would get to spend eternity with him. That's what God wants for everyone. So the question David is asking, is this the way you usually deal with man? That you say, I'm going to be your ride or die. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to pour my blessings upon you. I'm going to love you. I choose you. And God's answer to every person is, yeah. That's what God wants from every single person. Jump over to verse 8. And in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 8. In chapter 8, some of your Bibles may have a title that says David's victories because in the course of time, in, in verse 1, it says, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. And what it says is subdued them is before he defeated them. And they would come back and still attack, but they weren't an issue. Now he subdued them, meaning they were no longer attacking. They were under his rule. And then in verse 9, it says, When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on the victory in his battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Tau. 
Jerome brought with them articles of silver and gold and bronze. So basically, Tao was, was, was saying, hey, David, you just took out one of my enemies. So I'm going to send some gold and all these things to, to just show you uh, uh, how, how happy I am and to give blessing to you for all that you've done. But the interesting thing is if you go down in verse 11, it starts listing all the people who David just dropped. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Subdued again, not just defeated, but now those nations that were attacking him were now paying tribute to him and now worked for him. And that included Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek. Amalek was the one that had the giants, right, where, where uh, Goliath came from. And then he also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zoah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And it says, as David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and what was right for all of the people. So God was with David. Everything that David put his hand to, God was like, yep, I've got your back. Go do this. I got your back. And as we read before, usually before he went out to war, David would say, hey, God, should I go up against these guys? I mean, is now even the right time? And God would either say, yes, go, or no, don't. And David said, okay, yes, go, we're going to go. No, don't, then we don't. And God gave him victory and made his name known. And, and like I said, even the people who don't believe in God know the name of David. Now, one of the things that David did was he showed mercy to the descendants of Jonathan. And I'm going to put, just because we're going to jump back and forth throughout stuff we've already read, I'm going to put these verses up here uh, on the screen. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, it says, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We talked about the fact that David and Jonathan uh, were not just friends. The Bible says they were one in spirit. And although people look at that verse and they try to make it out that they had some kind of same-sex relationship, and they didn't, because we talked about the fact that, one, uh, David was filled with God's Holy Spirit. And David says in one place that, hey, Jonathan, the love that we had was better than the love of women. And it wasn't like the same. It was better than because they had a spiritual love. It's the same way that God loves us. That spiritual love that transcends romantic or erotic relationships and is on a level that is totally spiritual. And he says, hey, love with women, and David had lots of wives, somewhere down here. That spiritual connection that we had, way up here. So much so that now, just as God has been a ride or die or been there for me, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to look for someone in your family, and I'm going to be that for them. Not because we had this romantic relationship, but because of the spiritual connection that we had. Now, a uh, little history, let me jump back. Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, who David's talking about, he had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old. We read this a couple of weeks ago. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and he became disabled. And his name was Mephibosheth. So when the Philistines attacked in the same battle where Jonathan and uh, Saul and two other of Saul's sons where they were killed, then the nurse, she knows the culture at that time. The culture is, hey, 
The king just died in war. Whoever defeated him is coming for all of his heirs. And I have not seen one episode of Game of Thrones, but this is what this reminds me like. Um, that whole, you know, battle for the throne type thing. Whoever is coming for him is going to take him out. So the nurse says, hey, he's five years old. She picks him up. She says, we got to run. She starts grabbing all the bags, runs out, drops him. But they don't put a splint on it. They don't take him to urgent care. She just picks him up, and they run. They travel however long it takes. They get to somewhere, and they hide out. No one prepares his legs. So either, I don't know if it's, he was on crutches, or he just couldn't walk at all, had to use a wheelchair. But then... While that was happening, the men of Judah, and we read this, they came to Hebron, and they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. They said, okay, we acknowledge that God has said that you're supposed to be king over Israel, but this was only over one tribe. But over the other tribes, Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, he took Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and he made him king over the rest of Israel. So you've got David, who one tribe says, we acknowledge God wants you as king. We acknowledge that. We accept that. You're our king. But over the rest of the nation, they take Abner, who's the general of, of Saul, and Saul is now dead. He takes and does the human thing. The next person is the next living son. He's going to be king, and rightly so. But then this happens. Uh, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and we talked about this, lasted a long time. David grew stronger. House of Saul grew weaker. And then Abner, now, now before I read this verse, let me tell you what happened. Abner, who's the general and working with Ishbosheth, who's now over the house of Israel, Ishbosheth says, hey, I've heard that you tried to, you know, hit on one of Saul's concubines. And that, that's the equivalent of him saying, hey, she is one of the women of the kingdom of the house. So by me connecting with her, I become the man of the house. And he's, Abner says, hey, uh, if you're accusing me of this, I'm no longer going to help you. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to help David and I'm going to bring all the resources. And he goes over to David and he says, hey, I know for a fact that I can help you do what God called you to do. Meaning he knew that this was God's will for you to be king over all Israel. So even though he was helping the house of Saul, he was doing it in objection to God's will, which was that David became. So he goes over and he says, I'm going to commit my resources to you. And David says, come on in. That's fine. We can use all the help we can to bring this war to an end. But then Joab took him aside into an inner chamber, as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, who was killed during the war, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. So now Abner, who said, I'm going to go help and I'm going to leave and go over to the house, he dies. And then Ishbosheth, two guys come in while he's sleeping. They cut off his head. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Now, I give you all that so that we remember this is what's in the mind of Mephibosheth is that, hey, when I was young, you know, um, um, I was rushed out of the house, I became lame, and because of this war, I lost, you know, my father, my grandfather, my uncle who was king, all of these people died. And now we're about, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm guesstimating based on the seven years that uh, 
King David was in, in Judah and how much time has passed. Instead of five, now he's about 20 to 25 years old. We'll say 20 years old. Like 20 years old, still lame, can't fully walk correct or maybe can't walk at all. And then this is what happens. King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makur, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, at your service. So put yourself in his place, right? Everyone in your family has been killed because of your family name, because you're potentially an heir to the throne. Person on the throne, even David, even though David didn't have Abner killed and David didn't have Ishbosheth killed, they've all been killed because of this war and this battle. Years go by, you're no longer in a house of your own name. You're staying in a house of someone maker, son of Amiel, probably because if you put your name on a deed, then those people who want to kill you will find you and kill you. And then suddenly there's a knock at the door while you're sitting there watching HDTV and you're yelling for the property brothers, and you're like, who is it? And some government men show up. They say, the king would like to see you. And you're dragged out of your house. We assume dragged. He probably went willingly. Not like he could put up a fight if he's lame in both feet. And you appear before the king. And all you can do is bow down because technically you're an enemy of the king. You should be killed by the king. In the existing culture, the world that you know of, you're a threat to the king. And you're probably scared, and you're probably shaking, and you're probably in your heads spitting off your last rites, because this is the end for you. And David says to him, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And can you imagine the relief? It's not just relief like, hey, I'm going to let you go. It's not just relief like, hey, uh, you're going to live. I have no beef with you. Uh, you can go on your way, and I'm going to go my way. It's relief that says, hey, you're hiding out in someone else's house. I'm going to put you back in the castle that is rightly yours. The land that your father owned is going to be restored. And even though up until this moment you thought you were an enemy of the king, but now you're going to become a family with the king. And you're going to dine and you're going to eat at my table as if you were a king. And that's what God does for us. He takes us, because uh, we, as we look through the Bible over and over, uh, we see instances where, like in Romans, say God shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were separated from God because of our sin, and I know we don't, we don't spend as much time on the aspect of that sin, but it's the equivalent of saying, while God couldn't bear to look at us, stand us, or have us in his presence, Christ said, I'm going to die for them. And in other places, Paul says, while we were enemies of God, Christ said, I'm going to die for them. And in Colossians, Paul writes to the church in Colossians, and in uh, chapter 1, he says, in other words, you who were separated from God and had a hostile attitude towards him because of your wicked deeds, because of our sin, 
because of the sinful human nature we had, he has now reconciled in the sons, that's Jesus Christ's physical body through his death, in order to present you holy and without defect or reproach before him. At one point, God, God, he could not stand to have us in his presence. And it wasn't a choice. It was just because of who we are, the sin that was in us. But then because of what Jesus Christ did, now that word, uh, we don't have any defect. We don't have any reproach. We could actually approach the throne of God with grace and with love and receive his mercy. And where, uh, um, where David said, I'm going to show you mercy because of what your father Jonathan did in our relationship, that word mercy is also translated goodness because that's what he did. He was really good to him. But it's also translated mercy and grace. I'm going to show you mercy. You deserve death. But I'm going to show you mercy, and I'm going to show you grace, not because of what you did, but because of what I did. So what we're going to do here is we're going to uh, partake of communion because communion is the biggest reminder that God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that, for lack of a better term, that he is our ride or die. That he willingly chose us to allow his body to be broken for us and his blood to be shed for us. And then he reminds us that I'm coming back for you. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for I received from the Lord himself that which I passed on to you. It was given to me personally that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was treacherously delivered up and while his betrayal was in progress, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take it, eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this to call me affectionately to remembrance. And it's interesting because Paul said, hey, I didn't read about this in the Bible book. I didn't hear this preached in church. This is what God told me. Just like God sent a prophet and said, this is how I want you to say these exact words to David. Jesus shows up and said these exact words to Paul. This is what you are to do. This is how this is to be carried out. And typically, not trying to rain on denominations, but most when, when people in the church partake of communion, it's just this ritual or this ceremony that we do and we kind of do it, but there's no meaning to it. But Jesus adds meaning because he says, I want you to remember that this is not a ritual. This isn't a fulfilling a ceremony. I chose to do this for you. This is personal. And he says the same thing. He says, similarly, when supper was ended, I love the fact that they call it supper. He took the cup, also saying this cup is the new covenant ratified and established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to call me affectionately to remembrance. And we forget, this is a new contract. This is binding. That Jesus personally stepped forward and said, hey, even though you're sinners, even though you're separated from God, even though technically, according to God's perspective, you deserve death, I choose to have my blood shed for you, personally. And he adds this. He says, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're representing and signifying and proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until he comes again. He said, every time that we partake of communion, what we're doing is we're telling the world, hey, Jesus chose me. Jesus died for me. I have a binding contract signed in blood with Jesus showing his love for me 
and that he's my ride or die. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me, and that he's coming back for me. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to have the ushers come up, and we're going to close out by partaking communion. God, I, I lift up everybody here, and maybe whoever hears this at, at some later date, that uh, maybe they're in a place where they never knew you. They never experienced your love. They never experienced your grace. They never experienced the mercy that you showed to humanity by shedding your blood for us. And I pray that they take this opportunity now to enter into that relationship with you. There's not a prayer that they have to say or a special thing that they have to do. Just acknowledge that you loved us and that you sent your son to die for us. And we also lift up those people who maybe they do have that relationship with you, but maybe they've uh, just, it has become ritualistic and it doesn't have the focus or, or the attention that it needs to. And I pray that you revive that in their hearts right now. And that you impress upon them the importance of the fact that you willingly and personally chose them to love them, to die for them to take them while they were enemies and invite them to sit and to be at your table for all eternity. And for those of us who maybe were in this place where, yeah, I know God is my Savior. I love the Lord. I love my relationship with him. I pray that you just impress it upon us to remember that you have not left us alone, that you're coming back for us. And just impress upon our hearts give you praise and thanks for your unparalleled devotion and commitment to be with us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.